Uh, hey, everybody. Good morning. My name is Victor. Uh, if you're new here, um, I'm just one of the pastors. Uh, and I welcome you, and I'm glad you're here this morning. We are in the book of Acts this summer, and this morning we will be in chapter 17. So if you want to use your pew Bibles or your phones, um, let's turn there together. Acts chapter 17. It's after the Gospel of John. I'll give you just a couple moments to get there. Chapter 17, we'll start in verse 16. Here we go. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears And we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, people of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. 
uh, Jesus. What a powerful encounter that we just read about. Um, I pray that we would learn from it today. Uh, Would you open our ears to hear from you? Uh, For those um, who are here that um, don't know you, who kind of worship an unknown God, I pray that they would they would come in, uh, they would have an encounter with you this morning. And for those of us who live and work and play um, among those who are like these philosophers who um, who spend their days just around um, people who who don't know you, would you uh, teach us how to live and love among our neighbors? how to be a blessing to them. Uh, all, all these things, we look to you, Jesus. Um, you are the most brilliant person that ever walked this earth. You're the most beautiful life that this world has ever seen. And, and so I pray that we would see um, the gospel in that light uh, this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, so today we're in Acts 17, and it's it's my favorite passage in the book of Acts. Um, it's one of my favorite in the whole New Testament because in our passage we see Paul engaging with folks who don't know who Jesus is. They've never heard of him. And this text has deeply formed in me convictions about how to talk with and live around other than Christian people. Uh, I think it's also a text that if you are a person who doesn't believe in Jesus, and you found yourself here this morning, uh, that, that you should let this text form your expectations about how your Christian friends should live around you. The scene, it's a lot like the one that we looked at um, a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 14, where Paul, he's speaking to pagans in the city of Lystra, However, the setting is very, very different because Paul is in Athens now. Um, He's in, he's in Athens and Athens is one of the intellectual cultural centers of the Greco-Roman world. Um, And what happens here, what's decided here in this city, uh, it doesn't stay here. It fans out to the known world. And Paul, we read that he's not just in the city of Athens, but we read that he's invited to speak more about his faith in Jesus at the Areopagus, which was kind of the center of the center of the intellectual and religious life of Athens. It was like a mix between a lecture hall and a court hall. Um, New ideas were discussed here. And also just civic, religious, and moral matters were decided upon here too. So Paul isn't outside of Laszlo's in the Haymarket. Paul is at the university. Paul is at Capitol Hill talking uh, with the philosophers and thinkers um, of the day. the, The intellectual elite in Athens. And the way he engages with these folks is just, it's a masterpiece uh, of the New Testament. Because with respect and appreciation for their religious and intellectual attainments, Paul 
somehow exposes what's lacking in their great knowledge. Because even the greatest thinkers, Paul says, can't think up the one true God. You just can't. And he points to their altars to the unknown God as proof of that. So the question that we're going to ask today um, is simply, how do we share Jesus with those who don't know him? How do we share Jesus with those who don't know him? Um, The first answer is, um, followers of Jesus are going to be provoked. (laughs) We kind of got to start there. So if you look at verse 16, uh, we we hear that Paul, while he's waiting for, for Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul is aggravated by what he sees as he just walks around Athens. Why? Because he sees that the city is full of idols. He's anguished over their idolatry. They're they're giving their worship to gods that are man-made, that aren't really gods, that can't actually save them. Um, They're stealing worship away from the one true God. This God that that he, Paul, has been rescued by, that he loves, that he knows intimately, personally. So he gets aggravated in his spirit when he sees that. Um, I get aggravated. I get aggravated when um, my wife comes home and tells me stories about getting honked at on her drive to work. Um, Because I love my wife. My wife is a good driver. And when people honk at her, I get mad. Because they are not upholding her dignity they're not uphold, they're not respecting her and were i in the car with with her when she gets honked at i would have taken the wheel and uh and and gone after those people because some someone i love deeply whom i care for deeply who i respect deeply um has been disrespected her dignity hasn't been upheld so i get aggravated i get provoked in my spirit i get um, just to be honest, I get provoked when I, walked pa- I walk past the Unitarian Church in my neighborhood. I get provoked. Because I think that what they stand for, um, it just it doesn't make sense. Um, objectively, it just doesn't make sense. It steals worship away from the one true God that I believe in. You know, they stand for um, the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. I do too. I do too. And it provokes me. It agitates me because I think that it's impossible to affirm that all of the religions in the world say and lead to the same thing. I just do. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, who says that I'm the way, the truth, and the life, walking past that Unitarian church provokes me um, I think, um, because, just one quick example, you know, Muslims, they believe that, uh, they believe in Jesus, you know, Muslims believe in that there was a historical person named Jesus, they don't believe that he was God, or that he was raised from the dead, that he was crucified, and raised from the dead, so for someone to come up to them and say, you believe in the same Jesus as Victor. They'd be extremely offended by that. They would be provoked. <laughs> you know, so um, 
I appreciate, you know, those folks' openness to other people's belief. I want to emulate that, but I I get provoked when I walk past a place like that, a place that I feel is stealing worship away from the one true God that I believe in, that I've been saved by. So I get provoked. Have you ever been provoked? You should all say yes. Um... I think even if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm sure that there are things that make you pound the table, that aggravate you. Um, What is that thing? Someone uh, does something that goes against what you believe to be true about the world. Something um, that that mars beauty. Uh, You see justice being withheld. You see power exploited. Um, And you get upset because it's, it's something... That you believe in something that you, you think is worth worth kind of fighting for, and so you see it messed with, and you get provoked, right? So followers of Jesus experience this too, and don't get me wrong, like Christians, we can get provoked about the wrong things, all the wrong things. We get provoked about yoga pants. We get provoked about those folks who read the Harry Potter books. Those folks, watch out for them. Um, so we can, we can be a little uptight sometimes and, and get provoked about the wrong things, right? But I think when worship is being stolen away from the one true God, it's right and good for us to get provoked. And the thing is, is how do we respond? How do we respond when we get provoked? So Paul, he observes the city. He sees all the idols. He gets provoked. But his, his uh, reaction is something that we might not expect, knowing just how Christians respond when they get agitated. He, he responds in a way that we might not expect him to. So, so this question we're asking, how do, how do we share Jesus with people who don't know him? The second answer is, followers of Jesus should reason. We reason. So look at verse 17. It says that Paul, he saw the idols, he got agitated, provoked, so... He reasoned. He reasoned. He didn't throw up his hands and leave Athens. He didn't stand up uh, on a soapbox and shout at, at, the, at these people how horrible they were, how far from God they were. No, he, he didn't get online and, and post a scathing anonymous review on Yelp about how horrible this city is. No, he reasoned. He reasoned. And this word uh, in the Greek is dialegomai, dialegomai. And you might hear it in that word, but it's where we get our English word for dialogue, dialogue. So Paul engages in this back and forth conversation with the Athenians, first with the Jews in their synagogues and then in the marketplace with the Gentiles. And some of the intellectual elites, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in the marketplace, they hear Paul speaking and they're like, you're saying some weird stuff, but I'm curious about it and I want to hear more. And they invite him to the Areopagus. And real quick, just who are these Epicureans and Stoic philosophers? We just need a little history lesson because we don't, we don't have, at least not identified, we don't have these um, kind of identifiers nowadays. So Epicureans, for them, life was just about the pursuit of pleasure. 
It was about the pursuit of happiness. They didn't believe in immortality or life after death or, or really anything spiritual. They were materialists. So they only believed in what they could feel and touch and see. And they, they actually acknowledged gods, but they, they, they believed that these gods weren't involved in humans' lives. They were very, they were kind of deistic in that sense. They, they were separated from life and so they weren't afraid that these gods were going to hold them accountable for how they lived. Um, and so what does that boil down to? Life is a party. You have a desire? Fulfill it. Just, you, you do you. You only get one life. YOLO. So that's, that's the Epicureans. Uh, and we have people like that around uh, today. They're just not called that. Um, Stoics, they're kind of the opposite of Epicureans. So the meaning of life, it wasn't to follow your desires, but to suppress them. To not let life get to you. Their ethic was, was one of learning to want one gets rather than trying to get what one wants. And for them, everything happened according to this law. It was governed by a very cold, impersonal, divine force that permeated everything. So that, that, that's called pantheism. When, when God is, is in everything, and so the good life is one lived in accord with this divine, rational God. And so that's, that's who Paul's speaking to in the Areopagus. And we'll spend most of our time here this morning, but what does it look like for Paul to reason with these intellectual elites of Athens? First, he observes. He observes. As Paul's waiting for Silas and Timothy to arrive, he doesn't remain idle. He gets acquainted with the city. He walks around. He, he, um, he's curious about its culture, about its people. And first, he observes. So look at verse 22. Paul says, men of Athens, I perceive in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So he walked around their city, he looked at their statues and idols. In the marketplace, he engaged in discourse, he asked questions, he got to know what these people were about, what they love, um, what made them kind of tick. He recognized, uh, and as he did that, as he got to know these people, observed their way of life, he recognized a longing in them to worship a God that they didn't know, a God different a God greater, closer than their Greek pantheon of gods, those egocentric, angry gods that were really just portrayals of themselves. And so he doesn't need to convince them that there is a better God than the ones that they worship because they already have an altar to this, this God that, that they just long for. And so Paul observes... Uh, Francis Schaeffer, he was an American theologian, a theologian, he was a philosopher. He started this community in Switzerland called Labrie, this shelter for, for folks who were just weary with religion, who had questions and, and no place to take them. Um, he would invite these folks to enter into their community, to enter into discourse about their big questions. And he said... Um, he said this, and I think it's amazing. If I only had one hour with someone, 
if I only had one hour with someone, I will spend the first 55 minutes asking questions and finding out what is troubling their heart and mind. And then, and then in the last five minutes, I will share something of the truth. So consider someone in your life who doesn't follow Jesus. How well do you know them? How well do you know what they love, what makes them tick? What do you love about them? How would they answer the big questions about purpose and beauty and goodness and justice? Paul observes the culture and the next he finds ways to agree with it. So look at verse 23. Paul says, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. So Paul doesn't start with the Bible. Do you, do you notice that? He's not quoting scripture here. He's not quoting verses, at least um, not explicitly, right? And why is that? Why is that? Why, why isn't he, um, is he being a good Christian? Don't we need to quote scripture from the Bible? Um, well, the thing is, is that these Greco-Roman pagans, they never opened up the scriptures ever. They have no prior understanding or, or engagement, involvement with the Jewish, Jewish scriptures. So he doesn't start with the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob like he does with the Jews in the synagogues. No, he starts with the God who made everything, the heavens and the earth. And they get that. They understand that. He uses language that they're familiar with, that they would understand. This is why we need to observe before we speak, because if I start using words like redemption, propitiation, adoption, sanctification, uh, substitutionary atonement, it will make people like Isaac Twilliger giddy. But for folks who just have never opened up a Bible, they'll be like, what? Subs to what? They won't know what you're talking about. It will only confuse them. So can you talk about Jesus in ways that people can understand? In ways that they'll be able to to hear you and to be like, hey, we want to hear more. So how else did Paul agree with the culture? He not only uses language that they're going to understand, he uses their own cultural artifacts to explain biblical truths. So look at verse 26. It says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not actually far from each one of us. And then he quotes their own poets. He quotes their very own poets. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So these two quotations are borrowed from Greek poets. They're not scripture. They're their own poets that they would have been familiar with. It would have been on their Spotify playlists. Like they would have known these people, these these works that, that Paul is mentioning. So what is Paul doing here? He's showing them that God is not far from them. That they're close. They're so close to worshiping the one true God, and he proves it by quoting their very own art 
poetry. It's right there. You're so close. Your own poets talk about this God. And it's why I can get into a conversation with my other than Christian friend about our mutual love for stranger things. We can talk about it and and I can be like, I think that the most heart-tugging moments are, are those moments where people sacrifice themselves so that uh, and, and are eaten by monsters so that other people live and i think uh yeah those moments are so powerful and they'll be like yeah and where 11 just uses her mind to like crush things that's cool too i'm like yeah that's cool too but those moments where people give their lives so that other people will live they're like are you talking about like Jesus-y things? I'm like, yeah, I am. And then we'll like go get pizza. But it's those cultural artifacts, those things that everybody just knows about that, that we can use, that you can use to explain very real, very um, profound biblical truths. So um, we do that so that our other than Christian friends, they can hear it. And they, they can realize that, man, they already love and long for what we're talking about. We don't have to convince them that there's this God out there that they, that, that loves them. No, they already, they already have these longings to know Him. It's in their songs. It's in their stories. So in order to reason with them, Paul observes. He agrees with them. And then finally, he challenges some of their most deeply held beliefs. He challenges them. And, and the gospel agrees with and challenges parts of every single culture. So just think about our own culture. The gospel agrees that people are created equal with dignity, a voice, value. And that's, that, that's a very important value to our culture today, right? You hear it all the time. People are created equal. You see the signs outside people's houses. People are created equal. And I would agree with that. I think that the Bible says that is true. However, I think that the, the gospel disagrees that the good life is one of complete individual freedom and personal fulfillment. It wouldn't say that, that you are whatever you desire. It actually says that some desires are harmful and that, that meeting every want and desire would be selfish and lead to loneliness. That is not a popular view in our culture. So the gospel challenges and agrees with every single culture. So how does Paul challenge these folks? He says to these intellectual giants, these people who live out their days in nothing except telling or hearing something new, who pride themselves in their knowledge, he says to them, you don't know. You don't know what you worship. And your very idols prove that. You don't know. And where their knowledge has fallen short, he fills them in. And his address in verses 24 through 29 is just a masterful um, discourse. And what is he doing here? Essentially, he's saying, the God that you long for is both bigger and closer than you could ever imagine. He's bigger and closer than you could ever imagine. So look at verse 24. 
He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He says that God is so big. He's so big. He can't be contained by temples. He doesn't need to be served with human hands. He's so big. He doesn't need your sacrifices and offerings as though he depended on you. And he goes on, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He's so big. He planned out every single one of your days. He's so big that he planned um, when you would live and when you would die, when, when um, enterprises and, and cult, like cultural um, empires would rise and when they would fall. He's so big that your knowledge, it can't contain him. It can't think him up. And then he says that this big God is not removed He's not impersonal. He's not uninterested. No, he's close. He's closer than than they could ever dream of. So look at verse 27. God's purpose in creating everything, planning out their days, was so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. And he's actually not far from each one of us. So this unimaginably big God is close And easy to find. Because he's made himself known. He's revealed himself. Paul's God. It would have challenged his audience. The knowledge of these philosophers. For the Epicureans. They believed in gods. But remember. They thought that they were so far removed. That they they didn't care about. um, Human interactions. Human life. And so for them. To hear about this big yet close findable God who plans every single one of their days. It would have challenged their understanding. The Stoics, remember, they were pantheists. They thought that God was in everything. And so to hear that there was a God who created everything. Who created the heavens and the world. A transcendent holy God who was also closer and more personal than the rivers and the trees. It would have challenged their knowledge too. And then Paul says that for a time, God overlooked their not knowing him. He was patient with their lack of knowledge. But now this big yet close God, he's revealed himself in a person named Jesus. And because of this, they'll be held responsible. They'll be held responsible for this new knowledge. So look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent Because he's fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's saying that this isn't something new that you can simply toss around in your minds and accept or reject without consequence. This big yet close God, he's made himself known to you in the person of Jesus, a man. A man rose from the dead. And if that's actually true, it changes everything. If that's actually true, your search for the unknown God is over. It's over. He's revealed himself to you. And so Paul, he challenges their most deeply held beliefs. And if you've ever done something like that, um, then you know, 
even if you do it respectfully, masterfully, it's, it's inviting pushback. So the moment Paul mentions the resurrection, he loses them. Because the Greeks didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in a physical resurrection. And Paul knew that. And he knew that for the majority of his Gentile audience, that the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus seemed like foolishness. Foolishness. And so even in reasoning masterfully, respectfully with these philosophers, observing, agreeing, challenging, Paul gets mixed reviews. Some invite him back. Even fewer people believe. And the majority just mock him. The majority just mock him. So how do we share Jesus with those who don't know him? We're provoked. We reason. And we endure mocking. So Paul, he had to have some thick skin. Just think of what he's called in this passage alone. I mean, look in verse 18, verse 18, the Athenians, they call him a babbler. A babbler. And the word here, it carries this image of a little bird who walks around in the gutters picking up seeds and trash. And then that information together. You know, he's, he's just picking up little things here and there. So it's really, they're, they're saying, Paul, you're unsophisticated. You're unthoughtful. You're unoriginal. That's not very nice. They call him a preacher of foreign divinities. And finally, at the end of our text, they mock him. But still, this doesn't deter Paul from risking his ego. A man who, remember, he doesn't think much about how he talks. He doesn't believe in his ability to say things eloquently, yet he still goes with the gospel into the center of the center of intellectualism in the Greco-Roman world. And he believes that Jesus can hold his own in those places. Um, and I think that on the whole, you know, Christians, we're not good at suffering fools gladly. We're not good at enduring mocking. I know myself, I've called, th- I've called people things worse than a babbler. I'll just say that when I feel mocked for my faith. I've done things that I've had to repair when, when other than Christian people make fun of my belief in Jesus. And I, when, I, when we do things um, that, that give us a reputation that Jesus never intended— a church that can endure mocking uh, when we talk about him. So the church can learn from Paul here. Because what we see him doing here in Acts 17 is just following in Jesus' footsteps. He's just doing what Jesus did. Jesus himself just enjoying unhindered fellowship with the Trinity throughout all eternity. He was provoked when he looked down. And he saw a world that he had made. He saw worship being directed elsewhere and and saw that worship forming these people into things that he never created them or intended them to be. And so he was grieved by that. And with a holy jealousy and, and, and compelled by love, he came down here and he engaged with the world that he made. He, he observed it. He agreed with it. He found ways to agree with it, and he challenged it. He challenged both the right and the left. He challenged both the top and the bottom. And some people loved, loved him for it. And some people, most people wanted to kill him. 
And the Lord of heaven and earth who created everything by the word of his power, he endured these people's violent words and their violent fists. And he died for them and rose from the grave. These people he'd formed and fashioned for himself. Friends, Jesus, he is true wisdom. He is the end of the search for the unknown God. He's our resurrection hope. And he is the God that we get to share with our world. Let me pray. Jesus, you can hold your own in uh, the most intellectual centers of the world. Um, but Lord, we probably, yeah, we just confess that we, um, it's hard to talk about you sometimes. We get antsy, we get afraid, we get anxious. Uh, what will people think about us? And so, Lord, I just pray, um, would you give us, um, like you gave Paul, just this um, this holy confidence to speak about you in sane ways, knowing that you created the heavens and the earth and that our our friends and neighbors and family, they need you. You're their only hope. You're the one true God. Um, no amount of knowledge will save them. No amount of knowledge will lead them to you. You have to reveal yourself to them in the person of Jesus. And, and somehow you use our awkward, our very awkward and incomplete um, attempts to talk about you, to bring new life. And so I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would do that, that you would use us to do that here in Lincoln, uh, in our families, around the dinner tables. Um, would you do that? You're a big God and you are so close and I'm just grateful uh, we get to serve you. Thanks for loving us in Jesus. It's in his name we pray.